Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of July 5th, 2015. On this week's show, we'll talk about the U.S. women's national team's resounding 5-2 win over Japan in the Women's World Cup final. We'll also discuss the start of NBA free agency with LaMarcus Aldridge moving from Portland to San Antonio, DeAndre Jordan from the L.A. Clippers to Dallas, and Yahoo's Adrian Wojnarowski tweeting five more moves in the time it took me to recite the sentence. Finally, we will evaluate ESPN's use of the K-Zone graphic, whether the superimposed strike zone is a genius sports television innovation or an annoying box that won't get off my screen. Stefan Fatsis will be with us shortly on the phone from Vancouver, where he has been serving as Carly Lloyd's life coach. Uh, With us this week is Grantland's Brian Curtis, who is in our New York studio filling Stefan's cleats. How are you, Brian? Doing just great. Sorry, I meant to say, talk about what it's like to sit in for Stefan. (laughs) I usually, at this point, uh, falsely claim to be the author of Word Freak in a few seconds of panic, but I believe since Stefan's actually on, I'm going to decline this time on that one. Wait, I have another question for you. Has the feeling of sitting in for Stefan sunk in yet? Ooh, good question. Let me think about that. (laughs) Has anyone ever answered that? Mike, you can field this too. Has anyone ever answered, has it sunk in yet, with yes? It has already sunk in. (laughs) <laughs> right now, you know, right now, I guess maybe tomorrow. Uh, right now, we're just enjoying this. 
Has it sunk in you? When do you know it's sunk in? It's only, you can only say that in retrospect. Yeah, no good. one says it's sunk in. I'm thinking about yeah. going to the grocery store and getting some stuff for the yeah. weekend. I would like the, it. The, 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 the word you need to lo- rely on as, when answering that question is surreal. Because since <laughs> surreal has no real definition, it is itself surreal. You sound a little smarter than most people say. You know, it's just ah, uh, surreal. Ooh. Oh. It's, an, it's a uh, reference perhaps to uh, the Dadaists. I'll take it. <laughs> I feel like since Fox Sports one probably doesn't have that much going on now the women's world cup is over they should just have a sunken cam on carly lloyd just follow her every move for the next like few days and at some point declare that it has sunk in because we just want, don't ever get the follow-up of when it sinks in we need this I want, data i want that cam on the japanese goaltender <laughs> the best question asked her after the match uh, yesterday was what was going through your mind when you scored all those goals which <laughs> 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 is a fantastic totally talk about an unanswerable question um, Mike, we didn't introduce you. You're the host okay. of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist with Mike Pesca. Hello, Mike. Hi. Hi. Um, what was going through my mind as you gave that intro? I just I am that. Mike Pesca. <laughs> That's right. Accurate, 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 accurate. Um, in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk about Brian's recent piece on the history of baseball metaphors in American politics from Abraham Lincoln to Harry Reid. Maybe... A little bit of uh, Harding in between. Who else, Brian? Who else will we hear from? A little George H.W. Bush might come up in the discussion. And something about Harry S. Truman that you won't believe. (laughs) Uh, This segment is going to be a real ground rule double. To hear the bonus segment and others like it on Hang Up and Listen and various other Slate shows, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangupplus. You get a free two-week trial if you want to test it out. Uh, again, the URL is slate.com slash hangupplus. On Sunday in Vancouver, the United States women avenged their defeat to Japan in the 2011 Women's World Cup final, which had already kind of been pre-avenged in the 2012 Olympic final. But no matter, this time it was definitively avenged in a 5-2 victory that was over about 16 minutes in when Carly Lloyd scored her third goal of the match cranking the ball over the Japanese goalkeeper's head from half field. Here is how it sounded on Telemundo with Andres Cantor on the call. The Spanish announcer is kind of a cliche, but what an enjoyable cliche. Yeah. 16 That's years right. of counting, and this has been amazing. Never gets old. You're just talking about this one clip. <laughs> well, the ball did take a while to travel. <laughs> Well, we're out of time for this segment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, wait, Stefan. Let's now welcome in our friend, colleague, and USWNT superfan Stefan Fatsis, who was at the game and in photos posted to his uh, Facebook page, looked increasingly delighted and incredulous with each U.S. goal. Golasso! Stefan, how are you? Hey, guys. <laughs> Still incredulous, it seems. Still incredulous. The contour thing was just the icing getting home from, from the game and listening to that. 
three times. What was, was your experience great. like at the game? It was uh, it was interesting. It was the, the, I must say it was a, the pro U.S. crowd was yeah. I mean, it was pro U.S. crowd, except that during the Canadian anthem, was there a Canadian anthem? No, there was no Canadian anthem. There was a point where you realize that there were a lot of non-Americans there. We were surrounded by non-Americans. Um, so it was no, we were not in the uh, American Outlaws section. I was not holding up the giant head of Loretta Lynch. Uh, though we did run into the guy who uh, printed out the giant head of Loretta Lynch after the game. Um, he was very happy about printing <laughs> out the giant head of Loretta Lynch and bringing it in. He said everyone wanted to touch it and hold it. Loretta Lynch. All right. <laughs> what was your view from the stands as far as how um, the U.S. was able to dominate this game. We had a segment earlier in the World Cup about why isn't this team better? Um, this team got better as the tournament went on. It seemed like maybe some um, combination of just players improving and some tactical changes. It was it was pretty crazy. I mean, we were, we were sitting in the upper deck in a front row um, right at midfield, so we had a terrific vantage to watch these plays develop. Um, I mean, the first 15 minutes were unlike anything I've ever seen in soccer. Um, you know, I think the the Germany-Brazil semifinal last summer at the World Cup was was crazy. This was insane, um, largely because you did not expect the kind of outburst that we saw based on at least the first five games of the World Cup. I mean, I, I quietly thought before this game that the U.S. was going to kill them. Um <laughs> <laughs> because they looked so great against Germany. Japan hadn't beaten anybody by more than one goal. They did not look as fast, as skilled, or as talented as the U.S. did in the semifinal. And FIFA rigged the brackets. So the U.S.'s hardest game had already been played. In fact, the two best games of the tournament had already been played. Germany-France in the quarterfinal and Germany-U.S. in the semifinal. Uh, so from up high, though, you just saw the build. And the build was largely due because the U.S. had more offensive pressure by putting Carly Lloyd in basically a second forward slot, sort of a a forward midfielder, having five midfielders, um, two of them defensive, three of them pushing forward. I mean, the U.S. just was far more controlled, far more aggressive, far more powerful. And from my anti-Abby Wambach perspective, it was because they benched Abby Wambach, because Jill Ellis finally benched Abby Wambach two games earlier. Let's give Jill Ellis credit because... Taking Wambach on the f- on the team, I think, was fine. Playing her so much early proved to be a mistake, but the kind of mistake that still makes you, lets you leave the group having won the group. So that's not that bad a mistake. Maybe it makes you nervous. Maybe it makes Michelle Akers say, what the hell is Ellis doing? And that's fine for a commentator to say, but Ellis saw what was going on. Now, people were saying, oh, she needs to rejigger the entire attack. She needs to put, you know, three players forward. No. I mean, she tweaked the attack. She took away Wambach, who wasn't doing much. So what made Carly Lloyd be able to pressure up so much that she allowed other players like Morgan Bryan to play the more defensive role. Players filled in in this tweak system, and it just unleashed Lloyd, who I I hadn't really known this because I really only pay attention during World Cups. I'm like, oh, yeah, Carly Lloyd, one of the best players in the world. Apparently, she frustrates American fans. She, if it's not a big game, doesn't seem great. But at the risk, this is one of those that you can't be too hyperbolic. The game that she had was so phenomenal, so dominating. The I think in a big spot, I mean, you know, Mike Ruzioni with his goal. 
or Chastain with her PK, but an American team in a big spot, the most dominant performance in American team sport history, I would say. Wow. Wow. What else? Give me, give me another one. Wow. That's That's all I can say is wow. Give me, give me some time to compose myself and ask ask another question while I <laughs> Boom, do so. The take is so hot. Can we um, maybe overstate the the tactical stuff with regards to Lloyd Stefan? Because the three goals that she scored, two of them were off set pieces where she probably would have been in the same place anyway. And the third, I don't think she got an advantage from pressing forward when she was shooting the ball from half field. The goals off set pieces, they were designed plays drawn up by U.S assistant um, that worked almost kind of comically to perfection. And it just really looked, I don't know if it was uh, the Japanese defense being poor or just the the execution was was so great. But that's really how they won the game. Two things on those. That is how they won the game. And two things on those, and I hate to bring it back to Abby Wambach, but both of those goals, the, the first one particularly, look, the first one was drilled on the ground. It was a set piece designed for Carly Lloyd to run 30 yards into the box and strike a ball delivered flat on the ground. And it worked. And the second one was drilled low, backheeled by Julie Johnston, sort of flicked on to Carly Lloyd again, sort of running into the box, though not quite as dramatically as on the first one. If Abby Wambach had been playing in that situation, where would those balls have gone? In the air! In the air, in the air, where she was completely ineffective. Changing tactics, changing lineup had a dramatic effect on the outcome of the of of that game, of those goals, and and this game. The third Carly Lloyd goal. Oh my God! I mean, when that went in the air, when actually when she picked up the ball just behind midfield, I said to my daughter and my wife, who was at the game as well, I sort of said, not to them particularly, just I sort of screamed like <laughs> someone someone was open on the left. And then I screamed, oh, my God, she's going to shoot it. And then, oh, my God, it's going to go in. It was remarkable. I mean, the, the presence of mind to see the goalie, to see that the keeper um, for Japan was that far off her line and to launch it basically on a two-step delivery was just audacious and brilliant and, you know, demonstrated both the strength and the the accuracy and the sort of soccer genius of Carly Lloyd in that moment. Brian, I wanted to ask you about um, Carly Lloyd because she's kind of an interesting figure in uh, women's sports and in U.S. women's soccer more specifically. She's not a pioneer. Mike mentioned Michelle Akers, who's now a commentator, but she was really on the first line getting fighting to get access even to play on soccer fields and to you know make a women's world cup happen and she's not in the second generation like somebody like Mia Hamm who was a poster girl for the growing sport and a role model for young girls Carly Lloyd just strikes me as a jock um somebody who's playing for her teammates and for herself not some social cause and she's animated by the same kinds of grievances and slights both real and perceived as any other athlete. Um, what did you kind of take away from what you saw of, of her in, um, in the match and in her kind of post-match interviews? That's really interesting because I think it's one of these things where you can be 
not a uh, not somebody who's interested in politics, and yet the politics are thrust upon you, right? Because this always turns into our national gender studies symposium every time <laughs> we have a, a big event like this. I completely agree with your characterization of Lloyd. Though there was this funny moment in yesterday's New York Times. I don't know if you guys read this, but Andrew Kay had written a piece about the Germany game where he just his lead was Julie Johnston committing a penalty, and she got kind of emotional about it, and then her teammates got around her, and she settled down. The German uh, player missed the penalty kick, and that was that, right? So this reader writes into the Times and says, women have been disenfranchised with the help of literature that casts us as hysterical, excitable, delicate, and passive. I was surprised to see the Times describe professional athletes in a way that detracts from their accomplishment and power. Right now, Julie Johnston, I don't think is invested in this cause. If she is, I don't know it. But right? Weirdly, she wrote the letter. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what's interesting to me. I mean, you said you know Mia Hamm was this first generation. Well, you know, but Mia Hamm became whether she wanted to or not part of the Title IX generation. Right? Yeah. That was you know she was it was thrust upon her. And I think with Carly Lloyd and people in this group. I see the same things happening. What struck me in, in being in Ottawa and Montreal and here in Vancouver is conversations I overheard, uh, either you know walking around the stadium or in Ottawa, the guy that I was sitting next to in the stands, you know, listening to sort of men in their twenties and thirties talk about this as a team. Just talk about like, oh, what's Joel Ellis going to do with the lineup, and should Wambach be playing or not, and will the tactical formation strategy work? And I think that is a, a big change. I mean, the crowd is still predominantly families and girls between the ages of you know six and eighteen, with a smattering of bros and a smattering of others. But it's still a sort of family-oriented event. I mean, you definitely don't have the sort of raucous feeling that you have at a Men's World Cup. Having said that, that's what it is. And at the same time, we can just talk about it as being a team um, in this sort of fan context. It's very different, and it will remain different, and that's healthy. And I think some of the, you know, the, the healthy stuff that we saw from this tournament was the kind of reaction that the, the English player, Laura Bassett, got at home after she uh, scored that own goal to cost them a potential spot in the finals. We should treat all sports that way, all athletes that way, right? Yeah, and I think, by the way, that understanding the team as a team, it probably has a lot to do with our just knowing more about soccer and understanding more about soccer than we did in 1999, right? You know, I know me, and, and I'm probably still fairly close to this, but it was like, wait, who are these people? Oh, it's Mia Hamm. She must be really good, right? She's the Pedro Guerrero of this team. Oh, I'm sorry. That's like a 1989 reference. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Mike, is there anywhere we can move the kind of perpetual conversation about kind of what happens next? Is there a new direction to take that? Or is there a new strategy that should be pursued here? I know that the team is going to go on a tour of friendlies. And then the the pro women's soccer league in the US immediately after the game is like support our players. They all play. In, they all play in our league. Please continue yeah. watching. Yeah. And maybe it shouldn't because the pro women's soccer league barely pays many women um, a, 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 something close to a living wage. I was trying to find out, because I was doing the comparison between Laura Bassett and Chris Webber, you know, huge blunders that blew a chance at a championship. And so Chris Webber, the thing that, the asterisk you could hang on him is even though he never won an NBA championship, he did make $178 million during his playing career. Laura, Laura Bassett, Bassett's, yeah, her consolation is nice tweets. Yeah, her consolation is this tweet <laughs> from the official Twitter feed of uh, at England. Our lionesses go back to being mothers, partners, and daughters today, but they have taken on another title, heroes. All right. A little diminishing, no? That's going to say. Chris Weber goes back to being a student athlete today. Yes. Yeah. 
<laughs> and Brian, you've you've talked about this a lot is just the use of television ratings to assess sports health. The ratings in this tournament were a lot uh, higher than they were in 2011 on ESPN, which Fox is understandably crowing about. But time zones have a lot to do with that. And so how do you feel about how that is inevitably going to be discussed? Time zones have a lot to do with it being a sporting event that happens in the summer when nothing else is happening on TV, as opposed to being the World Series in October when the networks are firing their big guns, by the way. I think what the TV, I think TV ratings are terrible and a mendacious way to prop up whatever sport you want to prop up. But uh, what or, or take is, down whatever sport or, you want to take or down. Or take down right. in the case of baseball, right? But what this proves is Americans are intensely interested in seeing Americans succeed on television. Yes. Right? And we knew that already. Uh, we know that every four years of the Olympics. And, you know, wouldn't you love to have seen the uh, ratings for the non-American final of this if that had not happened? You know, we, we like to watch Americans do well. Yeah, I mean, the third place game, I think, got two million viewers, which was seen as kind of remarkable. Stefan, what are your kind of final thoughts here? There was um, on TV, definitely the sense of American triumphalism and Japan was basically treated as opponent. Like we didn't really get a get a much of a sense of of who these well, given how they played, I think that's kind of uh, charitable. (laughs) They were barely opponent. (laughs) You know, again, I think that the proximity to the United States made this a perfect storm for this team, for its fans for the media reaction and attention that I assume it's getting back home, back home being all the way down, you know, in the United States, yeah, which is half an hour from where I am. But American fans are very loyal to these two teams, the men and the women. And I think what you're seeing is a, is a parody in terms of support of the men and the women national teams in soccer. And that's a great thing. I mean, they are very, like I said, they're very distinct experiences going to these games. And I don't think one is better than the other in any way. Um, they're both very jingoistic. They're both, they're both exuberant. One feels more aggressive. One doesn't feel quite as aggressive. Um, you know, one you're happy to take your 13 year old daughter with and walk around and, and be in the stands and be in the rowdiest section that you can be. And I'm not so sure it would be quite as comfortable at a men's game at this level, you know, should the men ever play in a world cup final, but it, it was great to be here. I mean, and that's silly and it's, uh, and it undersells it. But those first 16 minutes against Japan were as exciting a 16 minutes of sports that I've ever seen uh, in my life in person. And, you know, I think it's, it's you know, for my daughter, is awesome. You know, it's a memory she will always have um, to see these women succeed like that and sort of will themselves effectively. And that sounds like a sports cliche, but Jesus, I mean, they sucked for the first five games. They were completely unimpressive. The game we saw against China in the quarterfinals, it was lackluster. It was not very well played. You know, they won one nothing. They couldn't finish. And then to turn around and and dominate the two better opponents, the two best teams they played in this in this tournament, just demonstrates how tremendously great athletes can rise to occasions. That you know that that you can tweak things, and those tweaks can create confidence, and you can excise problems. And not to bring it back to Abby Wambach or anything, but you can you know correct what's wrong and go out and blow people out of the building. And that's I was what they go- I was going to end with just saying your respect for Abby Wambach just oozes through those those comments. Thank you, Stefan, and uh, enjoy the rest of your uh, Canadian holiday. Well, you'll you'll be floating on a 
cloud of American exceptionalism. You know, and we were brought down to earth a little bit after the game. We were walking around the stadium and some Canadians walked up to us very, very nicely and congratulated the United States for its excellent performance. It was a very Canadian display. <laughs> Canadians. Love Thank the you. Canadians. Thank Happy you, Happy people. All right, guys. Bye. On the first day of NBA free agency, teams gave out more than $1.4 billion in contracts to the likes of Portland's Damian Lillard, Cleveland's Kevin Love, San Antonio's Kawhi Leonard, and Golden State's Draymond Green, all of whom re-signed with their current teams. The player movement started shortly thereafter with great dunker and bad free throw shooter DeAndre Jordan moving from the Clippers to Dallas, and LaMarcus Aldridge, who's averaged more than 20 points and 10 rebounds a game the last two seasons for Portland, going to San Antonio. Brian, uh, let's start with how these transactions are covered. Last year, you wrote a piece for Grantland headlined The Trade Rumor Era, where you made the undeniable argument that the NBA's offseason has swallowed the actual season. NBA writers will tell you that stories they do on players changing teams or potentially changing teams, whether this year or in 2018, are much more widely read than anything they write on actual uh, games. Uh, So how did we get here? I think a couple of things. I think, obviously, the LeBron, uh, multiple LeBron free agencies, uh, which one of which is technically happening as we speak, you know, was huge, right? Because it's very rare in a sport that the best player in the game and one of the very best players in the history of the game changes teams so easily. I also think the NBA free agency is so complicated, uh, as we saw this time with teams dumping contracts and uh, fitting in all the salary cap room stuff that there's just lots to write about, right? It becomes as much about breaking news as figuring things out. And I think those two things, not to mention Twitter and all those things that, you know, reward uh, sources tell me style journalism, they sort of created the trade rumor era as we know it. And fans claim to... And that was first reported by Yahoo. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that recapitulation, Brian. Fans claim to like loyalty and and players, right, Mike? But they get bored with their teams as currently constituted. And the free agency and and trades offer a kind of hope that you don't get by just returning the same roster year after year, especially in a league where, um, you know, star players determine so much of, of, uh, you know, how a team does. So it's not just general managers. It's fans who just kind of go all in for stars, uh, you know, even if it's imaginarily going all in, like Wizards fans for Kevin Durant. Well, I don't know how much fans reward loyalty. I'm a fan of the Knicks and the Nets, and if those teams were loyal, we'd stink again this year. So you got to have new players in there. Well, they want the players they want to be loyal to be loyal. They want the good players to be loyal and possible. I, I guess fans of LeBron James want him to be loyal. That's true. And now let's work our way down. And the better a player you are, <laughs> the more they want you to be loyal because there's a good, I don't know, how many players would you say are grossly underpaid in the NBA? The very huge superstars, that's the best value in the NBA. There are two spots of great value, right? If you get a lot of value out of uh, a rookie pick, especially, you know, a rookie pick after nine, that could be phenomenal. And then Durant, LeBron, maybe even Aldridge are way over overpaid because of uh, because they don't have you mean way underpaid way underpaid because they don't have the economic stream here's the one question i have and this is why you know durant is not going to sign with another team because there's all this money coming into the nba right there's going to be increasing the salary cap by almost a third from 60 something to 80 something brian why is anyone taking a max contract this year when the max contract could be so much better next year 
Well, they are, but I think if you saw DeAndre Jordan, right, he signs a four-year, $80 million contract, yes. which we can agree is That's a lot good. of money for DeAndre Jordan. But interestingly, he has an option to opt out after the third year. Now, there's two things that that does. One, he gets more money, potentially, if the salary cap goes and balloons to some crazy level, right, which is cool. But number two, I think it allows these players to exert a kind of player personnel management on the franchise because what happens is the Mavericks, let's say the Mavericks have DeAndre Jordan, Chandler Parsons, and a healthy West Matthews, which is a big if in the latter case, right? Are they good? Is that a team that's going to win the West? Yes, except for the fact that there are a bunch of other teams in the West who we could list their roster and go, oh my God, right. including like Oklahoma City, who didn't even qualify for the playoffs. Right, so the Mavericks won free agency, but essentially what Jordan's saying is, if you're not better than the Clippers team I just left in three yeah. years, I'm going to be 29. LaMarcus Aldridge's age right now, and I can go get another huge contract, and I don't care about you know staying with your team. So you have to please me, and I think that's a huge thing about this. So we should do a ranking, not of the best players or the best free agents, but the best player GMs. Who has the biggest ability to say, fuck you, or you're signing my high school pal to your team? LeBron's number one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. DeAndre's up there. There's a whole bunch of these guys that we're, we've empowered. And there's a difference in power and a difference in, are you a good GM, right? Because yeah. if Le Le is LeBron a good GM? No, right? we're still not in his first up. tenure with, uh, with Cleveland well, when they LeBron signed Anton Jamison and Shaq. That's right. This, well, this is the interesting thing about LeBron is that he's simultaneously the best and worst GM. He's the worst because of all the players he wants to sign and they aren't good. And let's get Mike Miller for some reason. But he's the best GM because he's the only GM on the planet who could deliver LeBron James. DeAndre Jordan, <laughs> not in that kind of catbird seat. Right. But Deadspin noted this year, right, that LeBron is, has not actually signed this new contract yet because he's yeah. telling the Cavs and Dan Gilbert, hey, sign all the guys I want, and then I formally sign Right. Although you wouldn't think the Cavs would not be in aggressive rebuilding mode. So what's the, what's the control he's trying to exert? The specific guys he wants, and that is scary. He wants bad guys often. <laughs> so the thing that's fascinating to me about all of this is um, that in the NBA, success um, from a team-building standpoint is often, if not always, predicated on star players taking discounts. And so the only reason that the Spurs are able to sign LaMarcus Aldridge and keep the great core that they've had together is that Tim Duncan is willing, at this point in his career, to play for a salary that's not commensurate with his abilities. I've seen discussion that he might make something around $6 million on the open market. He would probably make two, three times that. Um, you saw that with the Warriors. Stephen Curry was signed to an extension a few years ago that's not, you know, one that's based on his current ability. So he makes around $11 million a year. So you have a, a superstar who should be making the max salary, who's instead getting a lot less, which allows you to, you know, fill in with other players and allows the Warriors to have the deepest, best roster in the league. And you kind of also saw this in the NFL with the success of the Seahawks and and how they've done that by paying their quarterback, Russell Wilson, like, you know, the 30th or 35th most, uh, you know, money for a quarterback in the league. So do you guys find that to be kind of an interesting tension that success in the league means underpaying someone or someone's? Well, I mean, it was sort of always thus when money became important. Michael Jordan was always uh, extremely underpaid. And since these underpaid guys are spread throughout the league, uh, not always fairly and not always one per team, but there's enough of them to give rise to at least a half dozen truly plausible title contenders. And also, since we think that, you know, I think there is about what makes the guy want to give the team the discount. 
something along the lines of the team doing the right things. So the Knicks will never have the guy who gives the team the discount or who allows himself to be signed to this max contract that really underpays him. I mean, maybe they will, but they haven't so far. And that's justice since the Knicks don't deserve that. But good teams or well-run teams like Golden State or, I don't know, well-run teams, but nice cities who LeBron James feels bad about actually get that discount. So roughly it sort of works out. He's not giving him a discount. Uh, to Josh, no, no, no. To Josh it's, it's the under, yeah, allowing an underpaid player to uh, play for them. To Josh's list, I'd add Dirk Nowitzki in Dallas, by the way, who could have uh, a couple years ago gone to them and said, since I am the best player to ever play basketball in the city of Dallas outside of Nancy Lieberman Klein by a factor of one million, <laughs> you should just pay me a max contract to end my career here, as Kobe demanded, right, in tribute from the Lakers, basically. Uh, he didn't. And I mean, this is, but this is the question to me. Like, do we feel morally better about a player like that lying up and saying, look, you know, ah, give the money to someone else? Or do we feel like Kobe says, look, I deserve it. I brought you lots of rings and um, I'm being overpaid for my declining years, but this is the price you pay. But yeah, sitting here, sitting in, sitting in my chair. And if I was Michelle Roberts, the head of the Players Association, sitting in her chair, I would see it as a kind of a big problem that players are valorized for taking less money than they would otherwise make because of the salary cap system. Um, And owners are getting this major discount for, you know, no other reason than that, you know, as Mike said, that players just have like a warm and fuzzy feeling about about the franchise. Or they don't want to spend their declining years uh, sucking up a bunch of money on a bad team, basically, right? They don't want to be the Kobe Lakers, essentially. Yeah, and they have self. There's a self interest in them too, beyond warm and fuzzies, right? They want to be. They Tim Duncan wants to win more rings. You know, he doesn't just love the Spurs that much. And you you mentioned cap space earlier. Um, there was a trade uh, last week where the Sacramento Kings um, traded Carl Landry and Jason Thompson, both credible NBA players forwards. Also, Nick Stauskas, who was their number one pick last year, a top ten pick to the Philadelphia 76ers. They all, the Kings also sent a draft pick and they got back from Philadelphia nothing, essentially. <laughs> Just like <laughs> garbage second round picks because you have to, in a trade, you have to send back something. And the, the Kings incentive was they needed a clear salary cap space. And so this is the kind of like weird perversions that the NBA economic system creates is that teams send around actual living, you know, breathing carbon life forms in exchange for, you know, ostensible uh, dollar amounts uh, that they can use to spend on other players. And and like you said, Brian, like fans kind of eat this stuff up. They think that Sacramento is dumb and Philadelphia is smart. And it's just like the an artifact of this bizarre system that we've all kind of come to believe makes some kind of sense. Yeah. And I'm not even sure if the, if it works. The free, you know, I mean, obviously, if you LeBron James joins your team, you have a great chance of winning an NBA title. But the other kind of marquee free agencies that we've gone through the last couple of years, right? Carmelo Anthony, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Dwight Howard. And I know this is like not, you know, some of those, obviously, that the Knicks being bad has a lot to do with other things other than Carmelo. But you know, I was talking to a fellow Mavericks fan, David Shoemaker, friend of the show, the other day. He's like, "Are we glad? Aren't we glad we lost all those high-profile free agencies in the last five years? Because all those guys are, you know, overpaid or a shell of themselves or hurt, 
And this team wouldn't have won any more games with those guys than we would have won uh, without them. It's hard for a fan to conceptualize this current NBA, which has a lot less to do. It's a lot. I think it, I think it is a lot less based on the collection of talent than it is the collection of talent being made to play together. I, I think uh, if you didn't know, well, let's let's take the Golden State Warriors, and if you didn't know what they could do as a group and you listed them as a collection of talent, would you be, yeah, you'd think they were a good team. Would you think they were this good? Would you think they were definitely as good? I mean, would you right now slot them above, you know, San Antonio or even the Mavericks or Oklahoma City? Or I wouldn't. I wouldn't. So I think that that is a decent enough silver lining that fans can say, hey, we have these pieces, but the pieces don't matter as much as maybe they did I don't know, a few years ago. Maybe it's not even a time argument. Maybe they never matter as much, but you can't get all excited about what you think an unproven coach will bring in terms of systems. So you just get excited about what the roster construction looks like. I'd also add another thing about the media, the way we cover free agency is, do you guys remember when LeBron and Wade agreed to play together a couple years ago? Yes. That was presented as a kind of collusion between the players, a kind of quasi-illegal collusion that they had come up with this during international competition, right? And this week, Chandler Parsons takes uh, DeAndre Jordan out to dinner five nights in a row, which frankly is a lot of dinners to have with anyone, even yeah. DeAndre Jordan. And um, and now it's just presented as that's the way the league works. And that, to me, that's an interesting and sort of subtle shift in the way sports writers write about players. We Now we kind of like, oh, we're happy they're forming these kind of semi-sandlot teams and saying, hey, come play with me. We'll work this out. We'll figure this out. And not treating it as evil. Yeah. They were just reenacting the movie 50 First Dates and didn't get all the way through. <laughs> yeah, Chandler Parson lost his memory every... Uh, it was hilarious. Uh, I think maybe that also coincides with this change from traditional sports writing to social media. So as players get more power, uh, a diffusion of sports sites can get down with that and they're not as uh, old, they're not as top-down, they're not as hierarchical, and back in the days when newspaper columnists were the most important thing, you know, you put your faith in uh, the the older, more established GMs and any upending of that system was seen as wrong. Now it's not. All right. Let's end by noting that the most valuable uh, remaining trade chip left at this point in free agency is Brendan Haywood, the center for the Cavaliers who did not play at all last year. He's valuable because he has a salary cap value of $10,500,000, which is not guaranteed, which means that the Cavs (laughs) can send him to another team because salary has to be equal in a trade. They can send him to another team, get back a player who makes $10 million who another team wants to dump. And then the the team that gets Haywood can immediately dump him and his non-guaranteed money and magically make $10 million disappear. So you have an entirely useless player that no one wants who the Cavs um, can now trade to get um, a player who can help them potentially win a championship. I love the NBA. All right. Last topic of the day is uh, a baseball one. Back in 2001, ESPN debuted a feature on its Sunday night baseball telecast called K-Zone. At that point, it was deployed exclusively in instant replays, showing where pitches crossed the plate after the fact. Starting in 2011, the network started showing it live during some at-bats. And in an interview before the season with sportsvideo.org, ESPN's coordinating producer for MLB, Phil Orleans, said, We are absolutely, unequivocally committing to K-Zone live on every game for every pitch of the season. One reason behind this move is that the technology has gotten better, allowing for ESPN to show pitch locations instantaneously and with more accuracy. 
Another reason, according to Orleans, is to differentiate the ESPN broadcast from all the other uh, baseball ones out there. So, uh, Mike, is the persistent on-screen strike zone more like the first down line, which is now um, a fixture in NFL broadcasts, one that we see as helpful and unobtrusive? Or is it like Fox's glowing puck, which was a supposed innovation that was more um, just a visual annoyance and was eventually scrapped? Oh, neither. That's interesting. I think it's more like if there were a glowing hands icon for a lineman to show that lit up whenever anyone held because it's presenting something that is subjective as an object of truth. And even if you want to argue the subjectivity of the strike zone, it doesn't matter what a strike, what the platonic ideal of a strike is. It matters what that umpire's enforcement of the strike is. And even everyone, every, no matter how much of a traditionalist you are, and no matter how much you decry this year's current iteration of the strike zone, which every three years there's that decrying thereof, what you want is a strike zone that matches whether actual balls or strikes are called. So it doesn't matter if seven times during a game there is a pitch on the outside corner that is called a strike that the t- K zone tells us it's wrong because the, after the first three times the umpire called it a strike, guess what, guys? That's a strike. So it's more the K zone should more be like a, a descriptivist than prescriptivist. I think it's more like uh, the most. The thing it's best like is the very super slow motion instant replay on uh, the back line of the end zone in football. Okay, because what it will do is it will show that the human uh, subjective call is so bad repeatedly that it will change the game and take it, it out of the hands it. of the humans. Name that's, it and shame it. That's what Glow it will do. Glow it and show it. That's what it will do. <laughs> Glow it and show it. <laughs> Thank you for that new phrase. I'm going to send that to the ESPN hierarchy, by the way. We're going to put that on Sunday Night Baseball every night. So the, now, dif- the difference here, though, <laughs> is that it's not that the balls and strikes are being shown against a strike zone graphic because other networks have done that, but it's been off to the side, kind of abetted by our HD widescreen era. You can show it in kind of the bottom right corner of the screen. The difference here is that it's overlaid over, you know, the catcher's glove. And so there's no way that you can avoid looking at it. And as as sports fans, as sports watchers, we get used to the visual vocabulary of all of these games. That's why it's annoying, like in an NBA game, when they, you know, during the finals, they're like, Let's randomly show this possession from a cable cam and you have no idea what's going on. Um, And so this is just a very kind of forward move by ESPN to completely change the way that we view baseball. And, you know, if you look on Twitter, you know, fans are not happy about it just because they're not used to it. So that's another question, apart from what, what you guys have raised about just merely having that information on display. It's how do you feel about having it just in the middle of the screen kind of overlaid over the, you know, the actual ball and glove? So I see the long game here, which is going to be that uh, we, were, we, are, we are on the road to automated balls and strikes sooner or later. And that once you have automated balls and strikes, the K-zone can come off because all that's going to happen is a little thing's going to go up in the corner and say strike and that's it. You know, right? You don't need to – you're going to trust that the computer called the strike or ball correctly. And to Mike's point about um, subjectivity, yes. But one of the things I was reading a Joe Sheehan column the other day is that 
since Sabermetrics guys have started studying framing data, pitch framing data, they've realized that a really good pitch framer can be the difference between 30 or 40 runs a year. And the umpires are calling strikes not where the ball crosses the plate, right, but where it winds up in the catcher's mitt. So this is actually like really – and what, one of the things he says about framing data is it's shown that human eye just can't call balls and strikes in any way. So it's not actually a consistent zone for everybody. It's a consistent zone if your catcher's really good. Now, every catcher has a chance, like I guess you could say, to be really good at framing the pitches. But it's not actually that. And so there's a lot of – so I think what this is going to show is that ultimately, like the framing data, it's going to show that we can't do this with human eyes. So we're going to remove the artisanal skills of ball and strike calling and of pitch framing and replace them with – a robotic Enrico Palazzo. Well, I would say that I, I like the idea that pitch framing is a skill. It is a skill. I don't know if anyone could acquire it. Uh, when I think the researcher, and I think he's with the Astros now, Mike Fast was the first guy to came out come out with good pitch framing data. And I, I, as soon as I read that, I'm like, that the amount of runs saved is so much higher. You would think it would help a little. It's it's more important to frame pitches correctly than to quote unquote call a game correctly, which is the thing that everyone gives compliments to catchers for. It's actually better than having. You'd rather have a catcher with like the fifth best arm in the league than with the best arm than, than Yadier Molina keeping guys off the bases. You'd rather have a good pitch framer than a great thrower. A.J. Ellis, who's Dodgers catcher, was exposed to all this pitch framing data. He was like, wow, this makes sense. He worked on it. He changed his game. One reason I think the Dodgers pitchers are so good this year is that Ellis frames pitches better than anyone in baseball. So is that one of those arguments where, oh, isn't it a charming thing that some guy is working the system? I don't know. It seems more a part of baseball, like bluffing is a part of poker, then it is a flaw that someone is exploiting or that it is a flaw that needs to be eliminated, a loophole. I don't think it's exploiting a loophole. I think it's part of the game or it has been so far. And I like that it's part of the game. This is all an interesting conversation, but I feel like you guys are not answering the, uh, the question that is primary in my mind. Which and is, why is this thing in the middle of my Why screen? is this thing in the middle of the screen? Does it bother? Does, it doesn't bother either of you guys. I d- it doesn't bother me at all. It it's really weird. Does. We'll get used to it. And I think it's in the middle of the screen because real baseball fans won't turn away. And so they could be taken for granted. And new fans might get sucked in or find it a little more interesting. And to your binary choice at the beginning, Josh, I think the, the, the Haley's Comet hockey puck has been like the only one of these things that we've ever gotten rid of, basically. I mean, you know, remember we hated the crawl when it started because that was annoying. We hated the t- the score on the screen in the in the upper right hand corner. That was weird. The yard lines were weird. The first down line was weird. Now we have the uh, w- with the kicking line right when they're in the two minute drill. Like, where do they need to get it to kick a field goal? <laughs> oh right, yeah, the, that one that, doesn't need to go bi- away. That's too binary. <laughs> what about hang time with punts? Is that everywhere? Do we like that? That's <laughs> and a big one. And the U.S. Open, the little uh, the little fox doodad that uh, showed uh, how the the guys, which I by the way love the shot tracer. Yeah, the shot tracer, because it was amazing, because I don't know about you guys, but my understanding of golf is, I love watching golf on TV, but my understanding is, man hits ball, camera shows <laughs> ball falling out of sky, and yeah. I have no idea what happened between those two It acts. should just go to file footage. The best, if you have the best ever shot of a ball in the air, you should get paid royalties and be a rich dude. Yeah, I just think that it's interesting, because, you know, as mentioned earlier, this information was already conveyed in broadcast in a way that was unobtrusive and you could kind of choose to look at it or not. And ESPN made the choice, which is not one that I would typically think that producers of sports television would make, is to make that same 
information more obtrusive and to not give fans the choice to to look or not. And so what I'm I'm thinking is that sports television, it's been said many times, has started to resemble um, sports video games. And what I think is going to happen is that, you know, whether it's in a few years or longer, you're going to be able to toggle this on and off. Um, we haven't really gotten to that point yet with live game broadcasts, but that strikes me as something that will inevitably happen where whether it's golf with a shot tracer or whether it's with the K-Zone that we'll be able to choose um, what kind of visual information is on the screen. Premium subscribers will be able to program their own K-Zone. So your team made of one on a 3-2 strike call. How would, how would Phil Cuzzy have called that? I, I don't... was going to say, I want to put the Eric Gregg strike zone in at various times during the World Series. I got the Cowboy Joe West strike zone. Fine strike zone, but he uh, throws the manager out half the time. Along with the kind of faux objectivity that the K-Zone offers, Mike, um, just in the rule book, the strike zone is defined as a horizontal line at the midpoint between the top of the batter's shoulders and the top of the uniform pants and the bottom of the strike zone is a line at the hollow between the kneecap. So is there someone in like the ESPN truck being like, is that the hollow beneath the kneecap? You rarely hear a phrase like that without humors in the blood being evoked. (laughs) (laughs) But I think we understand if it's like, you know, a millimeter outside the strike zone that it's a judge that we can live with it. And if it's, you know, a couple of inches outside the K zone, that it's a really bad call, right? I think it's so. not the hollow of the kneecap that is usually making the difference in these kinds of things. All right, let's uh, move on to afterballs. And with its uh, 5-2-1 over Japan, the U.S. became the first country to win the Women's World Cup three times. PolitiFact rates that statement actually as mostly true, the PolitiFact in my mind, because while the 1991 championship is now referred to as the first Women's World Cup, back then it was known as the first FIFA World Championship for women's football for the M&M's Cup, because at that time, the legendarily woman-loving FIFA did not want to use the World Cup moniker for the ladies, but it did want to give a shout-out to M&M's because Mars Incorporated was the tournament's official sponsor. M&M's Cup, Brian, what do you think? Ooh, I like it. Uh, What is your M&M's Cup? (laughs) Guys, I spent my July 4th weekend getting reacquainted with one of our country's heroes, This great American made bigger bank than Alexander Hamilton. His autograph was more noteworthy than John Hancock's, and he had more sex than any founding father listed in basketball reference. That's right. I'm talking about one Wilt Chamberlain. See, over the weekend, I read the NBA legend's 1991 memoir, A View from Above, a book in which Wilt called himself one of the most misunderstood celebrities of the century and claimed to have had sex with 20,000 women. So for my M&M's Cup... I'd like to answer some of the hypothetical (laughs) questions you might have about this magnificent book. Uh, Question, what were some of the outgoing messages on Wilt Chamberlain's answering machine? I'm glad you asked. The first message, tell me who and where, and I'll take it from there. Another message was, your call is pleasing, because this is the season. As Wilt noted, that outgoing message was, quote, excellent for Christmas. Uh, Question, (laughs) what words did Wilt Chamberlain want inscribed on his urn after he was cremated? Here they are, thanks to Wilt. I bet you wonder how all of me got in this little jar. Well, even in death, where there's a Wilt, there's a way. Question, was Wilt an organ donor? Yes. Question, what was the ideal height of Wilt Chamberlain's romantic companions? It turns out it's five foot four to five foot five, though in a view from above, he allows that now he liked them to, quote, be a few inches taller. Question, what puzzling act did Wilt Chamberlain once perform at the zoo? 
Well, I used to go to the zoo, Wilt wrote, where there was a male rhinoceros. The rhino would stare at me, and I would hop over the fence and fake a charge at him, and the rhino would hightail it back to the safety of his quarters. Of course, I was only bluffing. Question, how did the Harlem Globetrotters attempt to pick up female fans? Well, Meadowlark Lemon and the Globetrotters would identify a young woman in the stands, and then during the game, they would point to the woman from the bench and say, Meadowlark, she's not laughing. What's wrong with her? They did this even if the woman was laughing during the whole act. Meadowlark Lemon would then go into the stands with a written note. The note contained all the phone numbers of the Globetrotters. The team called this note the bomb, quote-unquote, and as Wilt put it, the bomb would go off 30 minutes after the game. Now, if the woman refused the note, a sullen Meadowlark would return to the bench and report, guys, the bomb blew up in my face. Now, uh, Wilt Chamberlain was not all about goofiness, and neither was his memoir. Way before its current vogue, Wilt was advocating for NBA playoff reform. He thought the champ of each conference should play the eight seed in the opposite conference in the first round, and the two seed should play the seven seed in the opposite conference, and so forth, just in case the conferences were unbalanced. That would be a fairly interesting reform to in-state in right now. Wilt advocated for marriage brokers, which in hindsight could be seen as an early call for online dating. Here's Wilt. You call up a marriage broker and say, I'm looking for a wife. I'd like for her to be five foot ten, to read a lot, to be an excellent cook, and to know how to swim. Now, while the phrase must know how to swim wasn't something I remember reading in many Match.com profiles, I think we can agree that Wilt was onto something. Wilt had more ideas. He noted that every time an athlete had a kind of surgery, he was serving basically as a medical guinea pig for the entire population, which would benefit if the surgery took. Wilt was against athletes selling their autographs which he equated to, quote, the buying and selling of love. Wilt was against athlete farewell tours a la Derek Jeter, which he felt forced rival cities to pretend they were sad that a great player was no longer beating them. Moreover, when the anti-Redskins campaign was but an apple in the eye of future Slate.com muckrakers, Wilt was against letting degrading Native American terminology creep into sports writing, they're circling the wagons, for example, or we were massacred. As Wilt wrote, what if we started using images and terms of the Holocaust when describing how teams get beaten? Finally, what about the notorious claim of 20,000 women? Well, I remember that Wilt had thrown out the number in the book and that sports writers across the country had used crude sabermetrics to prove it was ridiculous. In fact, on page 251, it was Wilt who busted out the sabermetrics. If I had to count my sexual encounters, he wrote, I would be closing in on 20,000 women. At my age, that equals out to having sex with 1.2 women a day every day since I was 15 years old. Now, Wilt's defense of this number is that throughout his NBA career, he accomplished things that seem otherwise fantastic. I mean, who would believe a man could score 100 points in an NBA game or win his whole career without fouling out? Wilt did add of the 20,000-figure quote, I'm not boasting, which was somewhat unconvincing. Guys, I'm not sure anyone in the history of this great country makes me prouder to be an American than Wilt Chamberlain. If you find a better candidate, then as Wilt would say, tell me who and where, and I'll take it from there. <laughs> <laughs> Two thoughts. Number one, very feminist afterball name, very feminist afterball. Thank you. Good good pairing. Uh, number two, the playoff reform is definitely the sexiest thing about that book. Yeah. Mike Pesca, what is your M&M's cup? All right. I've uh, changed on the fly, as they say. Reacting to something that Brian said off the cuff on this show, I will have my M&M's cup. M&M's cup, is that right? That's right. It seems like it should be uh, like attorneys general M's and M, but anyway. <laughs> 
So Brian said, you know, other than Nancy Lieberman Klein is the best basketball player ever to set foot on a court in Dallas. Something like that, right? <laughs> I think Dallas that's a little, a little more extreme than I said, but okay. Yes. So he was just talking about the great players of Dallas. And so immediately I said, wait, Larry Johnson, isn't he from Dallas? And I was right. He's from Dallas. He went to Skyline High School. And I just know them from the Chili, which has nothing to do with Skyline High School. And so then I said to myself, oh, there must be some other great players from Dallas. Brian, you're a pretty great player from Dallas area, Thank you right? very much. Yeah. Yes. So here is the greatest all-time first team. Now, Dallas is a major metropolitan center, and I know that they play <laughs> more football than basketball. But I got to say, the paucity of great players from Dallas is really striking. Did you know there are only three Texans overall in the Basketball Hall of Fame? The uh, Texas Western team that won the uh, championship game, the first all-black team that beat Kentucky. There, There is a team that's UTEP now, and not all of them were actually from Texas. So the actual Texans who are in the Hall of Fame are Clyde Drexler, who is not from Dallas. He's from the Houston area. And the other player from Texas in the Hall of Fame, and this is a Dallas product. Do you, want to, do you know it, Brian? No, hit me. It's Dennis Rodman. But he was not even a good high school basketball player. He was a good janitor at the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. He hit the (laughs) Grotesperth after high school, and then he became a good basketball player. Kenyon Martin is the other, along with Larry Johnson, the other Naismith player of the year from Dallas. Just think about how big Dallas is. Here's what the Dallas News named the all-time greatest Dallas team. Larry Johnson was on the first team. Dennis Rodman was on the first team. As I said, not because of high school accomplishments. Chris Bosh, Deron Williams, Ricky Pierce, they named him the first team, one of the five best players in the history of Dallas. The second team is an exciting team, though. I want the second team actually on the floor. They could do exciting things. You got Kenyon Martin. You got LaMarcus Aldridge. He's on the second team. You got a back. Well, before I get to the backcourt, you got Kurt Thomas, one of my favorite players, led TCU in scoring and rebounding, never, never quit, never stopped playing, played for 318 years in the NBA. And the backcourt of the second team, I want this backcourt to exist in real life. Mookie Blaylock and Spud Webb. Now that is a backcourt. But you really start seeing the uh, paucity of Dallas players when you get to the third team. Desmond Mason, Alton Lister. Dave Stallworth, Ira Terrell. All right, there's your third team for you. Yeah, Ira, Come on, Dallas. I, someone named Ira, I think, proves the uh, the concept. Yep, this Dallas basketball life. The uh, the other one I'd add is Jimmy King of the Fab Five. Yes. Who was so mediocre during his non-existent pro career that the masked Mavericks mascot called Mavsman was rumored to be Jimmy King in a mask <laughs> who was dunking off trampolines <laughs> That's really for, sad. for many, many years. Yeah. Oh, Josh, what's your M&M's cup? Uh, thank you for asking, Mike. Um, sure. The M&M's Cup was awarded to the United States in 1991 at uh, the first ever FIFA World Championship for women's football for the M&M's Cup. The leading scorer for uh, that team, 10 goals, leading scorer in the tournament was Michelle Akers, previously discussed on this episode. She was from uh, Washington State. And there are three other women on the team from Washington State, Amy Allman, Lori Henry, and Shannon Higgins. Um, in an interview with Seattle soccer blogger Frank McDonald, uh, Anson Dorrance, who we've had on this uh, show before, North Carolina, uh, University of North Carolina women's soccer coach, then the national team coach, said that back in the day, the women's game went through Seattle. Um, and that started with the Washington State Women's Soccer Association, which uh, began play in 1974 on that association's web- website. They say that the organization was designed so women could get together for fun and exercise. 
Uh, the biggest challenge at that point was finding fields to play on. I just hoped that nobody made them play on artificial turf. That would have been a disgrace. The first president of the Washington State Women's Soccer Association was a guy named Mike Ryan, who immigrated to the U.S. from Ireland and worked uh, in Seattle as a metallurgist in a factory. Is that how you pronounce that word? Yes. Metallurgist. Yes. Metallurgy. Uh, Ryan, in addition to metallurgy, coached the University of Washington men in the 1960s and led the Washington women's uh, teams named the Seattle Sharks, Romeosa FC, and FC Lowenbrow to back-to-back-to-back U.S. Adult Soccer Association championships from 1980 to 1982. Uh, That success at what was then the highest level of women's soccer led Ryan to being named the first-ever coach of the U.S. women's national team in 1985. Uh, He led them to a tournament in Italy where they sewed USA on their shorts the night before uh, their flight to Europe. Ryan died in 2012, and he was celebrated in the Seattle Times as a pioneer who helped turn the Seattle region into arguably the soccer hub of America. On a memorial Facebook page, Ryan's family posted a couple of old videos from local television that are fascinating to watch. Here is a clip of Ryan talking about coaching women. The ladies here, very open-minded. I can you know, tell them exactly what I want to get done, and then they're ready to try it. And they're not afraid to try something new. The guys are set in their ways, and they won't break an old habit. It's like a ballet dancer. Touch. Go. We do the same thing over and over. Yeah, it's repetitious. But every time, there's a little bit more we want to improve on. Oh, they're soccer players. It's as simple as that. So very, very progressive attitude there. Uh, women are just uh, soccer players like everybody else. All right. And now here is Ryan talking about the beautiful game. Why are you supposed to save them? It's a beautiful sport, as they call it. And who else can better play better? Only women. They look beautiful playing it. They're not their sleeves rolled up, macho type. They're, they're out there to play the game as it's supposed to be played. All good, God. Well done, Maggie. Way to get behind it. Uh, a little contradictory there. But in his defense, that was like 35 years ago. And he's Irish, Mike. The Irish are lovable scamps. I think may- maybe it can be read as sort of an extension of the nuts set in their ways, not these macho lunkheads. I don't know. And they don't roll their sleeves up. Yeah. I mean, they enjoy playing for FC Lowenbrow as much as the next guy. <laughs> His players did seem to love him, and U.S. women's soccer probably wouldn't be where it is today without him. Uh, In an obituary post on ussoccer.com, Anson Dorrance had this to say about Ryan. What I loved about Mike Ryan is the standard he set for the adult game in the United States. The elite teams that he coached in Seattle played with a great sophistication, and his contributions to the American game are the bedrock of our assault internationally. What could you hope for more as a coach than to be the bedrock of an international assault? Well, maybe this one fact I found about him. The Sounders, Seattle Sounders, honored Ryan with an honorary golden scarf in 2009. The Golden Fleece. Yes. They have to, they have to make clear. Listen, it's not really a golden scarf. The budget does not allow that. It's an honorary golden scarf. Not gold, golden. We'd love your feedback when we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up Listen in iTunes. You can find us at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. And it'd help us out a lot if you could leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Hang Up and Listen. Thank you to uh, Grantland's Brian Curtis for sitting in today. 
Our intern is Emma Zayner. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.